You are listening to the Good Game Podcast. I'm John Fallon. And I'm Tobias Dovey. And uh, the Good Game Podcast is a podcast with two teachers talking about how games and play are changing education for the better. So uh, we just uh, you, uh, we just finished ranting about how bad exams are. So we're both uh, very excited to be moving on to some more interesting stuff, which is of course uh, games and play. So we we have uh, a, f- a few cool stories today um, and some great guests coming up. Uh, but first, let's just talk about um, a Scientific American article that came out the other day that is titled "Play May Be a Deeper Part of Human Nature." than we thought and um i thought this was great that just that they're continuing like the hardcore scientific community is doing um continuing to look at play as this you know ingrained phenomenon that we obviously have to understand Mm. um and it seemed like they were using rats and this is funny they were teaching them hide and seek but and this is (laughs) this this is funny (laughs) they were teaching the rats both to hide, which you might be like, okay, I could see that happening, but also to seek. And that means like not finding other rats, finding the scientists, which I thought mm-hmm. was just, I would sign up for that. I would sign up for a lab rat to come like find oh, me yeah. and, and have to hide from it. Yeah. I mean, that's in a way so adorable <laughs> that if you have like rats playing hide and seek, I mean, it sounds like, sounds like something out of a cartoon, but hey, there you go. Yeah. Like um, Pinky in the Brain. A- yeah, and it's such a such a cool little experiment. I, if I remember correctly, um, yeah, they they were quite like certain that the rats were like actually getting enjoyment out of this stuff, like to just doing yeah. it because. Uh... Yeah, it reminded me of um, I went on uh, my my wife and I went on a spring break uh, in college, down in uh, the Keys in Florida, and there was a, a dolphin uh, research center, and you could do you could go swimming with the dolphins and. One of the things I always thought was really cool is they were explaining that the scientists, they, they, they watch the dolphins all the time and they see them on their own when like no one's around still playing the games that they use with them, like in their experiments and, and like, you know, in their training. Mm. Um, and they're like, yeah, they just, they enjoy it. They play just like, you know, humans do like, they're not just doing it for, you know, the reward or you know, mm. for the, for the, you know, salted fish or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah since we're talking about a reward and play, which is such a, such a fuzzy concept. I mean, I mean, yeah. people have been writing about play and what it is for like, I don't know how long, quite a while. Um, is it possible? Do you think John is possible to have, like, is it still play when you have like external motivation, like, like a reward for doing it? Well, yeah, that was one of the things that that that, that they were looking at is that they had to, uh, you know, one of the first definitions um, that they're looking at is like, it does it have to have um, a reward? And like, do you, you know, what 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 does it have to be? And one of the things they say is like, it has to be for, you know, you, you have to be free to do it, um, mm. which actually I thought was a huge, huge and great point to make because for me, that's one of the things I find most uh, important about um, games and play. And that, actually, here's one of the quotes from the article is, as uh, Huizinga, who is a scholar that they were talking about who studied this uh, um, play in, in human nature for a while, as Huizinga might have said, play is freedom. By acknowledging that non-human animals can exercise a type of freedom that seems very human, this research may chip away at the idea of certain human freedoms as exceptional. As scary as that sounds, it moves us closer to understanding ourselves, which is the ultimate go- goal of neuroscience. 
And and for me, that's so huge because, and, and again, you don't have to do games to get this, but I think one of the things that games make it very easy to do is to give your students more freedom. Mm. It, it gives you an easy way to set up a sandbox, if you will, and say, okay, play in this space, do whatever you want. Mm. Again, games aren't the only way you can do that. There's other ways you can give students freedom. But, uh, you know, I've become increasingly militant that that is the primary missing ingredient from traditional education is, is freedom for mm. students. Yeah, which is uh, I've heard this. I don't know. Remember whose definition it is. I think it's either Roger Colloy or, or Colloy. Is that how you say it? I think so. Or Heusinger is that. One of the their definitions of play is that it has to be voluntarily voluntary. And, I know uh, that's one of Jay McGonagall's like um, like four ingredients or whatever it is. Yeah, I, th I think maybe she quotes some other older games, uh, like pre earlier game scholar, but I'm not actually sure. But then again, it's 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 a common part of many de definitions of, of of what games and play are. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, heard some people raising uh, like the uh, objection that okay, but if you are asking like telling your students to play a game, then they don't really play it because you are like forcing them to do it. And I am. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I, it's a like, weird gray area. It's it's but like my immediate distinction is that I, I just disagree, but I struggle a bit, little bit to find like uh, boil my 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 disagreement into words because but it's it's too like you can very like to, to be very basic about it. You can tell your students play this game and and find this or do this and so and so, then that won't be play. But you can tell your students uh, play this game and see what happens. Anyway. Yeah. It, yeah, it's almost like the, you, you have to draw different boxes like, okay, there's play, which, okay, for arguments, say, let's say has to be completely voluntary, mm. you know, no external, you know, extrinsic uh, motivation. Okay, then that's play. But then I guess right next to it, and what you could do with making someone play a game would be it could still be fun. Mm. So so play is not equal necessarily to fun in that degree mm -hmm. which is own again we're we're really splitting hairs here but <laughs> i i agree i i would i have a similar kind of like just shrugging on my shoulders like mm. like you know i i, th I think it's, it's a bit it's a bit um navel gazing if you're really gonna yeah. care that much but, but then again it's there's no point there's a point to be made that if you make it too structured or too limited or too you know school schoolish <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not a word but you know what I mean? And then, then of course, you will take the fun of it out of it if it's oh, too rigid yeah. and too um, limited in a way. But at the same time, play like most forms of play have some kind of rules. I mean, even if it's Cal something like Calvin Ball, yeah. where you, <laughs> I mean, the, o the only rule is that you get to make up the rules. Exactly, but you like you. This is like it's social contract that okay. There's there are some rules, and if you break the rules, then you ruin the fun for everybody. Like, yeah, it's the it's the magic circle, you know. Um, and yeah. actually, I was just I was just listening to something else where they were talking about social reality, and that's that's the same thing. Where, you know, if you're sitting in front of a chessboard, or um, you know, uh, watching, you know, playing baseball, you know, you you cannot break the rule. Like you you could physically, sure. it's easy. You could take the knight and you can move it in a straight line. But the social reality of doing that is very strong. So yeah, and if you if you break the rules of chess, the play that that at, at, at least that kind of structured play that that has some like very like 
clearly defined, agreed upon rule set where, that everybody agrees about upon. It's a very fragile thing because as soon as you break the rules of chess, then you're no longer pl actually playing chess. Yeah, and you might be playing a different game, or it might just mm. be you know complete and utter chaos. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, another I thought another great thing is is like why, like why is it important? And and they they were talking about and this is similar to an example that other people have used for a long mm. time, and I've used a long time when I talk about it, is that you know quote. Predators might engage in sparring or chasing games to simultaneously train and explore. Other types of play help animals learn how to co follow complex rules, how to switch roles, or even how to build a theory of mind. In general, games are critically important in establishing healthy social interactions, and failing to play them can result in inappropriate aggression, anxiety, and social isolation, end quote. And I thought that was super important because... One thing I often talk about is how a huge change for me as a teacher and as an advisor was when I started bringing board games in the class, not necessarily like an English class, but in the more kind of casual spaces. Mm. And it was a fantastic way to get to know students. And it was amazing how quickly I could tell the students who had some social adjustment that they needed to get figured out by how they played in the game and the guys who could not cooperate could not play within the magic circle as well as the others it was i was like oh okay i'm gonna keep an eye on you because it's you know you're you're probably still figuring out some of these you know kind of uh mm. social rules and and it was abundantly clear you know mm. when you watch them you know playing yeah. a game or not playing a game yeah, sure. but all all forms of play i, I might be, like there's probably some game scholars uh, play scholars that are like would be <laughs> arresting me for saying this or something but <laughs> as far as i'm concerned all play is is cooperation even though if you and i are playing chess are like our opponents that's still a form of cooperation because we, you there's a contract that both of us obliged to if one of those breaks that contract we, we're breaking the cooperation and we're no longer playing or we might play, play just suddenly playing something else and then we then do this all negotiation of the rules all over again even like you playing catch with your dog is a form of has rules mm -hmm. and it's yes sure it's fun to like trick your dog and like pretend that you're throwing the stick or the ball and then the poor dog will go what what but then you're like <laughs> you're kind of being mean <laughs> in a way well then you're also getting into like the meta games of it that, that yeah. sometimes breaking the rules is actually part of understanding you know the magic circle of the games is that mm. You know, even even you know, it's it's like, you know, every everyone cheats at Monopoly. Like it's not in the rule book, but everyone knows that you really only play that game is by finding some way to cheat, and like yeah. it almost becomes like an unwritten part of the game is to like find out, stop the other people from cheating, or and and cheat better than they can. Um, so like the, yeah, there's often even meta kind of uh, yeah. yeah elements the, to that as well. The best uh, winning strategy. Uh, for like not only winning Monopoly but making sure nobody ever ever wants to play uh, wants to play with you again, which as far as I'm concerned is uh, like a major win because Monopoly is a horrible game. <laughs> yeah, the it's, only way to, uh, the only way to win Monopoly the, is to not to play. Yeah, but uh, and that's that's to buy all only like buy as many houses as you can uh, as you can, but never build hotels because then you're like sucking up all the houses, making sure no and like making sure the houses run out and making sure nobody else can build houses. And then you will just win, like you'll just bleed them slowly. <laughs> my my uh, my favorite irony about Monopoly is that it was supposed to be a game that was like satirizing, like yeah, I know, unchained capitalism, and 
and no now one, you have no one. No one got it. <laughs> and now you have Fallout Monopoly and, and probably like Friends Monopoly and Super Mario Monopoly and like all these horrible spin-offs. Well, like the worst one is like there's like a Ms. Monopoly coming out. It's like this horribly like gendered like it's what? like oh okay you guys totally totally missed the boat on that oh, one. Oh no. Yeah, it's it's bad. Anyway, um. So I, I think we can end this one just talking about uh, this, this great quote that ended the, the Scientific American article, which was saying, quote, why do we play? The answer may have less to do with fame, glory, money, or power than with Rapinoe's rapturous smile as she jogged free of the penalty box this past July. We play it because it is in our nature to do so. Um, nice th- they were using the example of, of uh, Megan Rapinoe's uh, goal in the, in the World Cup final um, and just how she went from stoic to, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, over, overjoyed just because it was, you know, she was playing and she was doing it at the highest level. Um, yeah, it's, it, we do it because it's there. And that's why I say all the time is like play is part of how we learn it. it yeah. You know, ignoring it is just ignoring a gigantic part of the brain and how we've developed. So it's great that, 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 you know, researchers are continuing to try to tease that out in, in more explicit ways. Mm. Speaking of teasing, we've got a really cool game that is based on, a, on, a, on one that some of us might have heard of before. And this is a, a game about disinformation. It's a, um, it's a game uh, called Troll Factory, and it's from your neighbors in Finland, Tobias. Um, how do you pronounce the, the organization that did it? It's Y-L-E? Uh, let's see. Like Ile? Is that it? I'm not actually sure. I just have to double check the article one more time. There you go. Oh, it's it's an acronym. Stands for. Looks like Elis Radio Oi. Sure. Again, I'm I'm probably butchering that. I will probably butcher it as well. Finnish is very weird. Yeah. <laughs> sorry okay, for it's... any sorry for any Finnish that I offended. Yeah. Uh, well, any Finnish uh, listeners. Norwegian it's... is also to be fair. All, Norwegian is also weird. Yeah, they're all weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, anyway, so it, it's basically like the the Finnish like BBC or, or PBS. It's um, you know it's mm. their their public uh, news uh, outfit. Anyway, they made a game that I thought did a couple interesting things. One, it's about a very topical thing for students. Is in you know as anyone who knows the, some of the work I've done with like Paul Darvasti and others, we're, we're big on kind of really needing to build up the mental defenses when it comes to kind of digital literacy and awareness. Um, and it, so it look, it basically puts you in the role of a internet troll who's, you know, being hired by an arm of some shadowy organization to basically mess with, you know, uh, an, an election and get on social media and, and do some bad stuff. Um, mm. So it says, Quote, the gamification of education on disinformation campaigns has been shown to help build up a resistance to fake news in the past. The University of Cambridge conducted a study in 2018 using a browser game called Bad News and found that completing the 15-minute game increased psychological resistance to fake news on social media, reducing the perceived credibility of fake news headlines by an average of 21% across 15,000 participants. So they were kind of jumping on uh, the bandwagon and building something that's a a bit more detailed. Um, And what I thought was great is that it puts you in the the shoes of the bad guy. Yeah. And I I, I can't think of a better way than just 
putting you in the in, in the shoes of the bad guy so you can see how it gets made um, as opposed to just kind of lecturing you about mm. it. It's it's a perfect example of, of yeah. good game-based learning. I actually played the, uh, uh, that game a uh, while back. I was interviewed. Uh, I, I was I, I think I was contacted by a journalist that asked, asked me like what I thought about it. And I, had, I hadn't heard about it or played it. So I went ahead and played it. And it was... Uh, it was interesting. It was a fun, like interesting experience that made me re like rethink my my uh, how aware of fake news am I actually? Again, the, it's not... the, the the bad news or or troll yeah, factor? Yeah, but ba- ba- no, bad news. Oh, bad the first one. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, the first one. Um, yeah, because it's it, it's one of those things where you, you you people often think like, oh, well, no, I can always I can always spot it. Um, but it, it, anything to build up the awareness, and that's that's something I, I do a lot with my students. You know, we're in the middle of a, a unit right now. We're we're reading about like you know different thorny concepts around technology, uh, a lot of it around social media, and um, they 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 get a lot out of just being aware and just seeing the moving parts. Um, does a lot. Like you don't even really need to load it with a particular wor- worldview. Just, just showing them the mechanisms that are out there, I think, I think makes it a, a huge difference. And no better way to, to familiarize someone with, you know, the mechanisms of fake news than having them, you know, kind of create and disseminate mm. it in, in a little virtual sandbox. Yeah, and that's that's again playing in, like into this, the strengths of, of of video games for for like um, highlighting these kinds of issues. As this is far most unconcerned, is that it, like you said, it puts you into the shoes of the bad guy, and and gives you like this this quite sure quite simple experience but still an experience of like what kinds of processes uh are involved in the production and the making of fake news yeah and 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 i think it's it's particularly interesting because social media itself you know if it's not a game it's certainly gamified Mm, oh yeah (laughs) likes we've got likes we've got retweets We've got oh. you know you know blue check marks you know on, on your Twitter name if you're you know top yeah, tier. Yeah, I, you know, I saw this. I saw this, sorry. I, I saw this this um, documentary on. I don't. I think I saw it on YouTube actually. There was this this documentary like the top something something number uh, top games in say like in forever like top top what fifty or twenty games. I don't know. But the twist was the like number one game that mo- the most popular or lot big, biggest or top game uh, a game according to them was was twitter twitter <laughs> yeah of course it's uh, it's it's the biggest game out there <laughs> which you know, is uh, yeah uh, i it's you know it's a big tongue-in-cheek i guess but it's it's, it's like it's a clever not... clever thing to make people think i think yeah absolutely because i mean it is it's it's interactive you know you're you're again let's go down the rules uh, you know the definitions it's interactive it's voluntary you know you're getting a reward out of it it's collaborative but but i would also uh argue that and this goes for this goes with twitter or uh, and also troll factory and ba- bad news at this it's i find it harder to argue uh that for their uh, the idea of of uh, the magic circle in these cases because they're it's so connected to reality in a way it's yeah, not a separate thing it's kind of, well it's kind of parallel i guess it, I mean, you know, what was it like? Gibson has that great line in Neuromancer. It, um, you know, cyberspace is, is a, um, oh, what do you say? It's a, it's like a collaborative hallucination or a joint hallucination, something like that. 
I should, I should remember. Maybe I think line. it's. I think it would be. I don't think that it's that easy just to to treat either like the, the Twitter's Twitter sphere or uh, these games as like each their own separate things because if you do then you are separating game from reality and then it would if, in that case it would be harder for a game to affect people like in make some like lasting effects on them when it comes to the the rest of their lives in a way what, you know, what do you, what do you I mean, mean? And I mean, if if we treat video games uh, like in the form of like the magic magic circle, that idea of a game being its own separate thing from reality, then how could a game actually teach you about reality? Yeah, we're getting to a lot of layers here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my my point so much about social media is is not so much as distinct reality. It's just that it it it's it's a parallel reality that we kind of know isn't real but we still often act like it is and then you know it's yeah it gets they, they bleed into each other that's for sure mm. um and i think what again one of the things i like about you know bad news and troll factory and games like that is because it, it, they're very close together because they both are using the same exact mechanisms um mm. and even more so and i thought this was a really good point that they made when they were designing the game when they were looking at the content um and uh, they're talking about quote the real world social media content and they used real world stuff uh, like memes and and whatnot the real the real world social media content in the game is to say the least extremely offensive journalistically we had deep discussions about using or not using genuine real life examples a component explained but at the end of the day those real world examples are needed to educate people about the reality of information operations and indeed they are the very gist of the whole experience yes that's fantastic that's a very very good choice to make yeah i think so but not least because we know that um when we're talking about any kind of, of game, whether it's it's educational, made for education, or whether it's like a uh, like say a historically inspired game like Assassin's Creed or or Civilization, um, mm-hmm. it's perfectly possible to just engage with the rules and not think about like t- trying to reach the win state or just mm-hmm. trying to like how do I cheat, how do I exploit the game mechanics, and it's perfectly possible mm-hmm. to play the game and not engage with the theme uh, and think about how the theme relates to like reality in a way i think this is yep. this is a very good choice for like trying your best to ensure that, that, that the player is actually like connecting those dots so to speak drawing those lines between the game and reality because that we call it, uh, alexander and i call it the reality gap uh, i think several other people also call it the reality reality gap that's 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 a very real issue and a real challenge when it comes to uh, at least a, like a soul solo gaming experience where it's just you in the game it's a very real challenge for for you to actually for the player to actually get um taking something with them out of the game and into their lives uh, does that make sense yeah I, I think for me it's just you know if i have to say anything it's like what both with game-based education and, and traditional education the other thing is that we just got to stop making it so abstract. Like it's, if the point of education is to prepare for the real world, you got to bring the real world into it, no matter how yes. ugly it is. Maybe yeah. especially if it's ugly, you know. Mm. And like so, I, I just think that they really tapped into an important concept, which is if you are trying to get people to grapple with ugly realities, bring the ugly reality in. Mm. You know, don't dress it up and try to boil it down to abstract so it's barely recognizable. Yeah, no, like no, that's no. Just, you're it's you're defeating the whole point. 
Yeah, and you're making it way more difficult to actually learn something from the game. I just read a, I read this this meta analysis of of research on game based learning, and and one of the conclusions of the study was that um, the some games that were meant to be some educational games in say say uh, science uh, different science subjects uh, they were a bit too abstract and they treated like specific phenomena let's like let's say gravity uh, as too isolated like in a very abstract isolated sense mm-hmm. and it made it very difficult for the students playing the game to actually can make the connections between gravity and like how how science is done it treated it as its own separate uh, and unchanging thing. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that was a very interesting point. And, and I just, I just, I'm just glad that they made the choice to realize, like, look, it, you know, it's going to be offensive, but trust the kids to to understand it within the context. Yeah. And again, it's your job as a teacher to create that context. Exactly. You know, just say like, look, you know, this is this is using you know bigoted language and imagery that you know on purpose to get you to realize how it's used as a weapon. Mm. And, you know, and I just think that's, that's an important thing to do because that's at the end of the day, isn't that what's, you know, education's all about is, you know, trying to prepare them ahead of time before they're actually participating in it, which again, when it comes to social media, they are participating in it. You know, that toothpaste, yeah. that by the time they're probably on average, what, 11 or 12, you know, they're in it, you know? Yeah. So it's our job to prepare them because they're already yeah. there. And it's important. It's super important. Mm. Um, All right. Speaking of important, um, one of the most American, important American journalistic outfits, um, the Washington Post, has jumped and uh, has a, a whole new editorial outfit called Launcher that is focused completely on video game news, esports coverage, reviews, and tips. So just another example of how you know it it seems that we're finally rolling the ball over the hill when it comes to you know this is part of you know real world real life it's everywhere you can't get away from it it's not trivial it's time to time to start studying it and talking about it in you know a serious journalistic way because um it's certainly worthy of it of you know as much as a sports section that's for sure Exactly. There was at some time ago most of the major, I think actually all of the Norwegian newspapers who had their like own dedicated gaming section uh, dropped the funding and, and fired all the people working with it because uh, I guess they didn't see there was whether there was any money in it. So it's and this is a quite a, two, three or four years ago maybe now I'm not sure. Uh, so all these guys were like went um, like went their own way. This, they're still doing. Um, uh, video game journalism, but it's it's sad to see that it's becoming that at least that kind of development. Video game journalism being like only being only found in like dedicated uh, video game news outlets and stuff, which is I mean, which is nice. I mean, many of them I, I read many of several of them several of them a week, and and uh, I enjoy them, and I think that many of them put out really great stuff. But mm-hmm. there's a value when like a newspaper like the Washington Post. Um, just incorporate like that already has like readers of all, all, all from from all like um, yeah all over the place. Actually, trying yeah. picking up the ball and incorporating this into their their like everyday news news uh, stream news outlets. 
Yeah, and they and they came at a great time. It's it's great to have like professional journalists that you know who have resources and time because um, you know you, you know one of their main sections, esports, you know, is is front page headline news. You know, on on the international relations f- uh, front, you know, mm. with uh, the Hong Kong protests and Blizzard and and all that stuff. And 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 we'll probably delve and talk about that later, especially yeah. uh, in an upcoming episode where we talk more about esports and the importance of having an esports program. But yes. um, it's great because you know many of their articles are on that. Um, you know, they're they're covering things about you know uh disability in gamings uh looking you know at the economics looking at you know kind of the genre so they're they're covering all their bases um and 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 they certainly seem to be off to a good start i think they're only on like their second day of publishing um so uh, it's 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 a promising start so if you've been looking for more you know kind of uh, journalism uh, on the game front this is a a great new addition uh to check out all right. Should we move on to to this uh, this uh, episode's guests? Yeah. So one. Uh, this is uh, this is the Euro episode. Um, yes. So to be to, uh, to um, did this interview. When was it? Over the summer? No, I think it was. I think it actually was last winter. Oh wow! So it was that. Oh yeah, it was, it's it was a while ago. ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. It was a while ago. Yeah. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit um, about the two guests, um, how you came across them, and and kind of the context of you guys uh, uh, sitting down um, over in uh, what was it, um, Denmark? It was, yes. Um, so uh, this week's this interview is with uh, Andreas Lebrot and uh, Tokil Hange. Both are, are uh, Danish uh, games and learning scholars, also working of, 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 uh, with uh, other things. Um, so the, the, the Scandinavian games and learning community is quite—it's not very large, so it's very easy to to like get in touch with people, and and, and you'll probably meet most of them just if you just go to a few conferences. So I, I already met Andreas and Tokil a while back, and mostly I think I actually met them over Twitter. I just I guess, and then I mm-hmm. have bumped into them and talked to them uh, a few conferences or like a few earlier conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I wrote to them and just asked, "Hey guys, uh, do, do you want to just um, try recording an episode for for the podcast?" And they were like, "Sure, definitely, let's do it." So this is just uh, three of us sitting in my hotel room in Copenhagen and talking about uh, games and learning in a very wide sense. Uh, they were mostly talking about their own projects, with which on all of them are like super super interesting. Tokyo talks a bit about uh, Minecraft uh, in in maths class, so mm-hmm. it's like a ne- very nice like continuation of, from last uh, last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is like that's the first first interview I've uh, I, I have done that you haven't been uh, like the first interview that you haven't like been a part of. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to listen to it because you know I you've you given me a lot of the previews and, and some of the spoilers, but it sounds like it was a really cool wide ranging conversation that that kind of touches on on a lot of things that 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 sounds super interesting. Yeah, Andreas and Tokila, super like really great guys, very interesting. They have so many like clever and, and interesting things to say. So yeah, I think this was a really good one. So coming up now is my interview with Andreas Libot and uh, Tokila Hange. Okay, so uh, we're here in uh, Copenhagen with uh, Torkil Hange and Andreas Libot, and we are here to talk about um, 
uh, how to connect gaming activities with learning activities and we are talking about the relationship between gaming and motivation so uh, I'm going to ask you gentlemen just to uh, start with tell us a little about, a bit about yourselves what, what, what the listener, listeners should know about who we are and what you do so we can start with you and us yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Andreas Lieberoth and I, I'm Danish, as you might have figured out since we're in Copenhagen. Mm. And my background is in humanities and in psychology, and I'm now an assistant professor in educational psychology, where I teach media psychology and research methods. But my background in the PhD that I did that kind of brought me to this table in the first place was that I was interested in the difference between learning in the classic l- school setting where you sit down and you either do exercises or you're taught things by a teacher and then learning through experiences that can could be mediated by a game. So I was interested in kind of the difference between having that day in day out experience of going to school and then when something exceptional happens, when something new goes on that you might be able to remember for the rest of your life. And from there I've been working with media psychology very broadly so i'm very interested in how life with the screens in general affect the way that people are together in social situations i'm very interested in how we learn in informal setting settings from each other's from uh, Mm. from media from social media and games are kind of part of that space to me so i'm not exclusively a game studies guy i'm also a media studies Mm. guy i guess there's an overlap between Game studies specifically and media studies in mm, general. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When it comes the, to these contexts. The, the media studies people might not know this, but it's the <laughs> case, yes. Yes. Now you know. <laughs> media studies people listening. So you talk ill. Yeah. I'm an associate professor at Aalborg University in Copenhagen, also playing the Danish card here. Um, my research is very much about how teachers use games in the classroom. Could be board games, could be commercial games how teachers can help students design their own games. Um, I'm very much working with teachers in my own mm. teaching and my own research and have a background doing playing role-playing games. I think we all around this table mm. have done that, oh, yes. uh, playing board games a lot and uh, played computer games a lot. And then suddenly I, I got really interested in how can we develop tools for teachers to use and, and to spread out. And then I also have a special interest in the literacy discussions around games, what kind of text can we actually develop around games? What kind of um, new modes of expressions can we work with in mm. schools that spring out of a game mm. experience? That's a special interest of mine. Now you you pick my interest uh, about like, how how do you work with 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 physical games or board games in this con- in this sense in this context? Um, I'm doing a project right now where we spend a lot of effort into letting. Mm. The, the idea is to let students design board games mm-hmm. that uh, face real life challenges. So, for instance, um, we all know there's a lot of uh, harsh debate going on on the social media. The students go there to see what it looks like on a YouTube uh, comment uh, track. And then mm-hmm. um, the students do research, then they design a board game which have to address that challenge and have to let other students play that board game and through that they discover um, what this problem mm. is in a mm. fun and also serious way in the same time. And they have to design this board game in a, it has to be entertaining, mm. but it also has to deliver a message. So it's very much about empowering mm. teachers and students to let them design and explore their own board games. I can imagine there's a very different 
way of approach approaching a subject than you would like in a more traditional classroom sense. Yeah, it's it's a it's a design thinking approach where you um, you you take find the real world challenges, you find design challenges, and you have to. You're not just reading a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're very much exploring a field, and then you are using games as tools for coming up with uh, new ideas, solutions for mm. addressing these problems. Okay, cool. So um, I I want to to uh, just um, ask you uh, you of, of, no ask um, ask you about you how how you got into uh, games and learning uh, in the beginning. No. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> It's it's kind of a I think I have just this gamer background that many of us have, mm. and then uh, all of a sudden I ended up in a job which was kind of boring, and <laughs> I saw this uh, PhD proposal for working with games and learning, and I thought this is what I really want to do. Mm. This is the core of what I want to do with my life. You got a calling. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, and uh, then it, all these experiences from my childhood, my youth, working with you know playing games all over that are sort of put in, in the background just came up and I saw this. This mm. is what I really want to do. Yeah. So I've been doing this for 15 years now and it's uh, it's getting more and more fun for mm. every day, I think. Well, let's face it. It's just an excuse to work with <laughs> gaming exactly. at work. Now we said way. it. Now it's yeah. out in the open. <laughs> How about you, Andreas? Did, yeah, did so you like get a calling in the same way as... I, I did not. I kind of inherited from um, my wish to be part of the games and learning work from a lot of friends that I had. Mm -hmm. um, I was part of the Danish kind of role-playing authors group. In Den Denmark, we have, or at least in, in the Nordic countries in general, both Sweden, Norway, Finland, we have a lot of free-form role-playing mm. games. And the way that works is that instead of buying a source book and playing dungeons or challenges that you can find in the book in a bookstore, you'll have someone write up a story for someone else, complete with characters and with a plot, and you'll play that as kind of a, a short story experience within three, four, five hours. Mm. Um, and we were writing these stories for each other, and they were usually being played by five or six groups, maybe at most one, like once a year. Mm. And out of that community, a lot of people started going professional in some way. So some people started designing games for learning and some people started advising teachers on how to use that kind of game for learning stuff. Others just ended up being authors, mm. actually writing stories or, or making mm. games. and. The friends that I hang out with, a lot of them were at the university already. They were a bit older than me, and they were working on games in learning. And I thought, wow, I really like my gaming kind of progression as, a, as an author, but I also really like the university as well. So, yeah. so I wanted to be those guys. I wanted to be like those guys mm. who were a bit older than me, and now I'm better than all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, the Level end game. Well, yes, yeah. of course. But that's so interesting to hear how about... Everyone has like that starting point, writing these free-from role-playing games, but having those things like grow and crystallize into so many different things. What what about that background? You know, writing these kinds of role-playing games. What what is it about that background that's allowed for such a diverse, uh, like branching pathways in a way? So for me, I think just getting a little bit into learning theory. One of the strong um, characteristics of the free-form role-playing game community is that there is a strong community of practice that's established already, that mm. you actually have a platform to write something 
force someone else to read and play and to get feedback on that. Mm. So instead of just being kind of an author who sits around and writes fan fiction and that's uploaded to the internet and, and mm. maybe five people will read it or back in the day you might write a short story, put it in your drawer and it'll never get out. In the role-playing community, I actually had an opportunity to write something and to get that in front of an audience, which I think is a huge boon for people who want to develop their skills, not necessarily as learning designers mm. or as mm. authors, but just as creators of something for other people. I think that's a really unique mm. opportunity that's mm. that spawned a lot of careers in, in Denmark, mm. at least. Just to um, br- take a, li- take a little br- break on, of for uh, on behalf of those of our audience who maybe didn't play role-playing games uh, when they were younger, so just a quick explanation of what, what is a role-playing game in this, in this sense. Yeah. So a lot of people will have heard about Dungeons and Dragons. That's kind mm. of the original game, Castle Black was the mm. real original one. But the uh, idea of the role-playing game is that you play through a story in your imagination where each player takes on the role of one character. And one other player, maybe not another player, but just a source book, kind of acts as the author who um, facilitates the story. So the the game master, as he's called, will maybe say, okay, so you can see light at the end of the tunnel that you're walking through, and then Torkild, playing his character, will say, mm. yes, it's there. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm playing the thief, so I'll try to sneak up and see if I can can see where the light is coming from. And then, mm. based on the player's choices, you'll make your, make your way through a story. Mm. And traditionally, it's kind of fan- high fantasy stuff, but in the kind of self-authored freeform role-playing mm. games, it's very often much more tied to drama, much more tied to kind of, you, you can play a story just about a boy and a brother and a sister waiting in the nursing home for their mother to die, talking through stories from their life, stuff like that. So it can be like really high drama instead of, of just the, uh, the stuff. But the main thing is that you're creating a story through improvisation. So it's very close mm. to a mix between board games and improv theater, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how I usually describe it. Yeah. Uh, some of the action, obviously, is mediated by rules in a way, like yeah. especially in the cases that it, there's a chance that your character might not make a certain uh, skill check or you, know, you might hit the orc with your sword and you might miss and so on. So that's where the rules and dice come in. But I assume I, uh, so I don't know much about those kinds of role-playing games that you, as part of your background, um, but uh, as far as I know, those are much more lighter on the rules than your traditional like high fantasy stuff would be. Yes. So, are, so are, are there are there any rules, so to speak? From time to time, there might be. Um, in some cases, you might have decks of cards that are made to create drama. So you might draw um, a, a deck of a hand of cards with different conflicts that you might be allowed to create and you can only create conflicts that you have in your hand so if you're playing a drama between a brother and a sister i can only bring in jealousy if i have the jealousy card for instance that might Mm. be part of it or it might just be that that you as the game master say okay so in this particular scene i want you to explore the love that that you actually have Mm. for each other and the scene will end before any of you declare you're not allowed to say i love you but you'll have to play through some some interactions that will facilitate mm. that experience that might be the rules of the game that someone says these are the boundaries yeah. of the scene that you're playing so fueling creativity creativity through limitations in a way yes exactly bounding bounded constraints bounded yeah. constraints yeah mm. so um 
Anything to add? Talk how did no, you I, play, I, I, play actually, these kinds of games? I, yeah. I didn't play freeform role-playing. I'm sort of more old-school dungeon <laughs> master mm. playing a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's more of a... I was living in the countryside. We didn't mm. have those fancy things out there. So, uh, uh, but I played a lot of uh, video games mm. back in the eighties, and uh, that formed my path into this field a lot. With mm. um, thinking about stories, where you can influence them, you can become engaged in the stories, and you know, just learning English from mm. playing video games, which is a big thing for me back in those days. Yeah. And and it was, I think, the whole. 80s gaming experience is very much still alive with me mm. today. So it's 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 still something I think about every day, actually. I can hardly imagine any of us being the people we are without uh, gaming as a hobby. No. And also, but also as a source for not only, not only socializing, but but um, like creative output or inspiration or what, you know what have you. What have you? I have an article on the back burner about uh, twelve years of, as, of a dun- as a dungeon master. Yeah. Like, yeah. Seminal in my approach to teaching, I think. Yeah. Um, but getting a bit back to the to the subject of this uh, this episode is um, we can start with with the idea of uh, game based learning as a method or as a way of motivating our students. Mm. So, uh, Andreas. Is is game based learning? Is there anything inherently motivating about game based learning, or is this um, mirage in a way? Yeah, I, I think a good way of answering that is to say that there are good games and there are bad games, and, and we <laughs> yeah. all experienced that. We all tried games that really were not engaging, really did not get us excited, really did mm. not feel fun, if we were to use the f word. Um, and there are games that are. There are, there are games that grab you, that, that drag you in, that somehow speaks to something that you're interested in. And games might speak to us in many different ways. They mm. might speak to us because they're about a theme that we care deeply about, that we're interested in. So, for instance, in in the kind of thematic arts, um, indie video games, there, is game, there are games like That Dragon Cancer and... Um, and Papers, Please, which are really not great games from a game design perspective, but they talk about like really deep mm. themes that might be interesting in mm. the same way that you might watch a drama movie that's not enjoyable mm. in the traditional sense because you get sad or you get mm. angry or you get flustered in some way, but it still gets you in some mm. way. So um, games that are not psychologically effective the, the kids have a word for that. They're boring. Mm. They, 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 won't, they won't grab us. And that's, at least in the game, game-based learning, um, the history of game-based learning, there's, you're right, there's been that argument where the formula is game equals motivation mm. equals learning. But there are kind of two disconnects there because games do not necessarily lead to motivation. They might lead to motivation if they're good and if mm. they're good for you. And that motivation might lead you to learn something. But there are two mites there. So, so, it, so it's not all clear that all games will teach you something. But the magic really happens when you have that situation where you found a game that fits your students or that fits you if you're the learner. Mm. And you actually have opportunities to learn something by interacting with that game. Either by... Mm-hmm. Um, by experiencing something that you might not have thought much about, just getting there and say, oh, wow, the Israel-Palestinian conflict is really complex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that might be learning in, in and of itself, or it might get you to just 
practice your algebra or something mm. in a in more time than spending more time on that than you, than you usually do then you might learn something from it but the motivation in itself that might be created by a game would not necessarily need to mm. learn it leads to learning i think is this a can is this a, to what degree is this a like exclusively subjective thing like what mo, mo, what motivates you are there any like universal constants here in any way i think that's an extremely good question mm. to ask a psychologist like me because <laughs> um, we always say well on one hand and then on the other um and i get asked that a lot so what are the kind of the universal design approaches that will that will catch anyone and there are some things that seem to be universal like the element of surprise the element of something that you can keep on exploring so basically the the notion of um, easy to learn, hard to master, mm. with challenge built into it is something that's that seems to be at the core of every game that will grab you in yeah. some way. You need you need a point of entry, but you need to be challenged throughout. But but the way that so, so I work with a six maybe seven scale or subscale um, kind of personality test for for gamers, and we mm. and by using that on both adults and kids, we've learned that. Pretty much everyone says that challenge is important to them. So challenge mm. is always important. But not everyone says that social stuff is important. So mm. Some people would like to not be social. Some people like that. Some people uh, like to kind of get their pulse up and get excited. Mm. Some people would rather relax around games. Mm. So there might be some universals like the challenge aspect. But stuff like competition or the mm. social element might be something that's not for everyone or might just be something mm. that's not for you all the time because... Sometimes I like to play games with my friends and I like to be socially engaged. Mm. And sometimes I just like to play a game on my mobile yeah. phone to relax. So situations might be very different. Yeah. So there are some, so I'd say there are games that are so great, they, they touch so many, of push so many buttons that they might be motivating to everyone. But in most cases, it depends on who you are and your mood at the time. Mm. So a lay person like me might be tempted to throw out the buzzword flow at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, is there anything merit to that? Or I would, so flow ties in tightly with the challenge motive mm. because the, the idea of flow that, that many people listening to this podcast probably knows about already but the idea is that there is a fine balance between being challenged in the right way and being challenged too much so things things get mm. too difficult and being not challenged at all you might envision that as, as playing a game of of soccer or football and mm. you might enter several fields and in one field you there are like fourth graders playing mm. it. And you're going to be the giant in that playground. You're going to be fine. That might be boring. That's not going to be a great game. Or you might head into the uh, old boys club where people have been playing for a long time and they're great football players and you're just going to feel bad about yourself because you're not good enough. And then there might be somewhere in between there that fits you. For me, that would be um, middle-aged, overweight academics who don't really <laughs> like soccer but would still like to play with their mm. friends. And in that space, I might be fine. So I'd say that games that are able to establish that correct element of challenge in the right deg degree from the beginning and throughout the game experience, whether mm. that be a couple of minutes or a couple of years, that seems to be, to me at least, one of the universals that both from a psychology standpoint and just from a design standpoint seem to be, mm. yeah, universals. Yeah. I'd say that, yeah. But then, but then we also have, yeah, like you mentioned, you mentioned games might be also be a catalyst for social interaction. Is that a, like a completely different thing? Or does that tie into this flow uh, aspect? Well, to me, games are always clusters of different things. So you can have a game that's great as a, as a single play, player game or something that you'll just do on your own. Mm. 
but would not work with someone else. So it would be really hard to play multiplayer Tetris, for instance. Yes. It, it might be interesting, but it, it would be a very different game. That, that game works very well as a single player game. Mm. And you might then have soccer, which you can also kind of play as a single player game, but it might get boring there a little bit, a little mm. bit down the line. So I'd say that, that, that other people might add to the challenge and, and, and put a particular flavor to the mm. challenge. Um, but they wouldn't nece- be necessary for the no. challenge to be there, for instance. So I'd say games are always kind of compacts of different mm. motives that will hit different people, different demographics at different times without any game being perfect mm. for everyone. At least that's that's my experience and kind of the, the psychometrics no. that we do. But are there too many people, when it comes to games and education, are too many people like chasing that dragon? I mean, finding the... Is that an inherently flawed uh, approach, thinking that a game will like affect anyone or like reach out to anyone? Because you might easily imagine a student rejecting a game at face value. Like this game is about, I don't know, let's say, okay, let's say Dungeons and Dragons. Some people might say, okay, I'm not a kind of person that enjoys this stuff. Mm. So I won't, I'm like, from the get-go, my interest will be to, to, to turn down to zero, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I would yeah. say that that dragon, that, that myth that you can build a game that'll motivate anyone, yes. A lot of people are kind of trying to sell that idea. That's one of the basic, I, I've met uh, at gamification kind of guru, self-styled guy, guy who kind of claimed that you can turn, turn any activity into World of Warcraft, <laughs> which I think is in kind of the Harry Frankfurt sense, bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's something that, that he... That's just speaking, irregardless of whether it's the truth or not. You just hope that you might be able to do it. Mm. Um, there are some games that seem to work, and in many cases, uh, the the invitation to play a game will break down some social barriers and will, will get every kid to say, "Okay, sure, a game. I'll play with you. I'll, I'm I'm on board with this. This is different from from what we usually do." So, in many cases, at least in my research, we find that the kind of the framing and the invitation yeah. and the yeah difference than having a game on the table, that might really be kind of the psychological mm. magic compared to the notion that any game will just be super motivation mm. motivating all the time because they're just not. Yeah. Any game can get boring and many people will not like the game that you put in front of them. But what they will like is often the opportunity to play instead of doing math mm. homework. So there's novelty yeah. aspect that's the yeah. most... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The novelty and kind of the, the in, in, um, in the study of animal play, one of the kind of central issues is that it's got to, got to be in a relaxed space mm. where you're not, too, you're not too hungry, you're not afraid of anything. You're okay with just monkeying around for a while mm. and creating, and games can help create that relaxed space um, which is something that Torkild and I have studied, yeah. have studied yeah. together, that in many cases you can find kids who are really not great at going to school. They don't like the school formula. They're used to being bad at the school stuff, the way mm. that school is usually conducted. But once they're said, oh, but today we're not going to do school, today we're going to do game. Mm. All of a sudden they're able to interact with their classmates and get respect and actually do math, even though they don't think they're doing math because they mm. usually don't like math, but in that mm. setting, they're okay with trying. Mm. So in many cases, I think that it's not so much about the game design, it's just about the game invitation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, why do you, th- so, but wh- why do you think that this, this argument, this, this way of like legitimizing game-based learning is the motivational aspect? Why do you think that, that's probably one of the most common arguments I, f- I find, I encounter when it comes to why we should introduce games in, in the school. Do you think that's that's overrated in a way? I think at least, I, I think the reason why it's often phrased like that is be, 
there are th- I think there are two reasons. One being that motivation is viewed as a problem that needs solving. That, mm. that, that teachers find students who are not engaged, they'd really like to find a way of hooking them. Mm. So they look for tools for motivation. And games are then presented as the medicine for that particular mm. illness. Yeah. And on the other hand, I think there's just the notion that everyone can see a gamer kid really engrossed, just heading home from school after having played in every uh, break, getting home from school and then playing three more hours. And they go, wow, I wish I could get that. I want mm. my math class to be that. They see that it's possible. And then they they use the term motivation to as kind of as a blanket term to describe that engrossment without being aware that mm. playing CSGO as a an esports activity involves a lot of stuff that's not really about playing the game, but about no. the mm. community. It's about mm. studying the, the game as it, as it's played by others. It's about um, developing language. It's about the community, all the, all those kind of, kind of things. But what the teachers and the parents see is just the game. And I think that's one of the main fallacies that people underestimate the stuff that goes on with gaming that's not in the game design itself, but that's around the game between exactly. players. The meta game. Yeah, the meta game. And, the, and all the paratext surrounding games. I mean, that's, I think <laughs> people are too much focusing on the kind of, that you sort of black out, in, engrossed, become so engrossed in the game, you enter another dimension and you sort of, and ma- magic things happen, mm. but you know when you play games, you always do it because you also you want something out of that experience, and mm. you, and that is always related to something that is always also outside of the game. I would mm. say so. It's uh, yeah, it it is very much about the framing and the the kind of mo- mood you become in when you enter a, a playful experience. Mm. That's and that becomes of course extremely complex when you go into a school setting, right? Mm. Because then there's yeah. another framing that's school. So so it, if you say it's complex, then you add a lot more comple- complexity mm. when you add the whole school dimensions. Oh, this. yeah. <laughs> so uh, building on, on that uh, notion about the, the different frameworks and stuff, like, is uh, this is a question to the both of you. Um, are, can a teacher like uh, be at risk of kind of colonizing the students, uh, like, uh, what should I say, culture in a way, or mm. challenging their hobbies or yeah. preferred spare time activities, or you know what? Can, you can... had a great case for that, and yeah, well, I, I I think the <laughs> and it's something that's been uh, a lot of people been saying that in Denmark for years that you are <laughs> sort of uh, taking over the culture that you are, yeah, colonizing them, and I think it's in many ways it's that is really bullshit to use the same expression you are having. <laughs> so so for instance, imagine you know. You're playing this game, you like this game. You're playing it at home on your own. Maybe with somebody online you never met or you may become friends with them online. Mm. Then imagine taking that experience to the classroom and now you're actually with, together with all your friends and you can actually play the same game with your friends in the same physical space. Imagine what kind of level that experience comes up to. Mm. And I'm specifically referring to Minecraft, which I've studied in schools here, mm. which is, I mean, the students were over the top for being there in that classroom. They they were dreaming about the day <laughs> that before it happened. Yeah. And they came and, and told me about that. So excited were mm. they about that. And so the whole idea that you sort of, you're taking something away from the kids, it's more like, no, you are actually bringing together in a room together where they're having this experience, this social experience, mm. physical, in the same physical room. 
And that's something that people are often forgetting when mm. they're talking about taking multiplayer games out in in the classroom. Yeah, definitely. But have you uh, have you ever heard of students like suffering from I don't know game based learning learning withdrawal? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's I don't know it's. Um, so I, I think yeah. we, we had a study where we were um, we tried with some consultants here in Denmark to they were implementing like actual good well functioning games in the multiplayer games in the classroom and we saw actually that um, motivation and engagement would rise during the activity but then it would fall below what it was afterwards and mm. one of the the ways that we interpreted that that kind of weird. Uh, rise and then dip below. <laughs> it seemed that it actually damaged the motivation to take part in classes afterwards. What that kid kids had now tasted the forbidden fruit. They now knew <laughs> that that math could be more inclusive. It could yeah. be different things. Mm. And when we then asked them, so how do you like math? Not well. I don't like it at all because I know what math used to be like a couple of weeks mm. back when we were playing games. So definitely there are some interesting framing issues there because what we found was that the kids who really needed more social inclusion were more included afterwards and they stayed more included afterwards mm. and they were more motivated to participate in, in all classroom activities afterwards. So so some good stuff came out, out of it in the long run, but the kids were definitely reacting to the notion of having experience doing school in a new way by being more critical, implicitly at least, about the way that they would experience school any other day because now they, they tried it. Mm-hmm. And, and just returning to kind of the appropriation of, of children's culture we did have a couple of, of cases in that um, in that particular study where kids were gamers and they saw themselves as gamers and they viewed that as their skill set and they were they were proud of being the gamer or if, if they weren't good socially in school then they were good as gamers so that was kind of their thing and they really did not appreciate the fact that this the school was all kind of trying to invade their space and and trying to to get them to, to to get the other kids into the space where they were. Mm. And I think you you know the story better than I do, but one of the interpretations that we had was one of the kids was really afraid that maybe he wouldn't be good at his thing anymore. Maybe the mm. other, others might be good at that as well. And then he'd, he'd kind of lose his mm. his special thing. So yeah, it's it's not all good for everyone. No, no, it's true. But it's, yeah. <laughs> but yeah if anything, that, that example demonstrates the fact that we sometimes often forget that uh, is that students are different people. Yeah, and have different like, well, approaches to everything we do in school, basically. But I want to uh, segue into uh, what you mentioned earlier, talking about Minecraft in school. Uh, is that um, so? I've heard, read some uh, way uh, way back. There was a, a British gentleman called Tom Bennett. I think he yeah. he is the head of research ed. I think I might be wrong uh, on on this, but. He was an advisor, I think, at one point of, to the British uh, government on on education and uh, other things. I think I'm a bit rusty on the details, but he he wrote a blog post that got a lot, he got a lot of negative feedback about how he saw a lot of not very let's say educational use of Minecraft in school. He said that he felt that sometimes that just gave you poor proxies for learning in a way mm. that students spent a lot of time. Uh, building like I don't know medieval castles in Minecraft instead of actually learning about medieval history and so on. Mm. So, uh, it's building a, maybe building on that example. Uh, how do you, how should a teacher go about connecting the the activities and goals in the game with the activities and goals of 
like, like the learning learning project in general yeah in classroom. I, I think that is actually the the key question of when you're talking about game-based learning in schools and it's also the most difficult part of the whole thing so it's not the, the main main trouble is not to engage students i think it's, mm -hmm. it's more about making those links and making them meaningful and when you're having that discussion you have to remember that games are different subjects are different mm -hmm. assignments within subjects are different teachers are different etc so it's there's a lot of different factors here. Mm. And so if you look at Minecraft in math, for instance, which I also study, mm. um, I think if you go on the internet and Google Minecraft math, you can find a lot of examples, which I would actually agree with this guy, are mm. not really interesting ways of using Minecraft in math because you would have assignments like where teachers simply just put up signs from their textbooks. It mm -hmm. says, what is uh, four times three? And the student have to write that answer inside Minecraft. So that's actually just oh. taking the Minecraft, the math textbook, textbook, and putting it into just remediating mm. it into Minecraft. Sounds like a very awkward way of doing it. it really, there, there's actually no reason why this assignment should be inside Minecraft. No, because it's nothing to do with the game goals. It's mm. nothing to do with the game challenge, with the game mechanics. It's simply just putting another, you know package around the assignment. Yeah, it's thinking everything's better in Minecraft. In exactly. <laughs> it, it's very, it's, it's, it's chocolate and broccoli. So, yeah. so, it, 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 so you can actually do that with Minecraft. You can make really poor math assignments that's not particularly meaningful. Mm. So what we tried in the project, um, working together with a math teacher who came up with a brilliant idea because it's, I think it's actually not that easy to make those strong links in, in math as mm. one might think it is. Mm. So we really gave it a hard thing how to do this. Mm. And we agree that it has to do has to do not only with the mechanics. People often focus on the mechanics, and that's mm. a good thing. But they also have to focus on the challenge, as Andreas mentioned before. Maybe mm. that's a universal thing here. Mm. Um, so we looked at Minecraft, and you have students ten years old. What is really difficult when you're playing Minecraft? It's and maybe you haven't played that much. It's actually to navigate. Mm. It's actually to find your way around. It's actually to find other your classmates your mm. 25 students within this space how to how to find your way around and the students they just trial and error mm. this they come scattered about they don't know where to find stuff so what to do well you actually press a button and then you have the coordinates mm. and the students don't know this this is not something that is a knowledge to them within the game mm. and all of a sudden they can use this knowledge which is mathematical knowledge it's mm. about navigating in a 3d coordinate mm. system they can use this knowledge to find each other, to, to store things, to retrieve them. The teachers can put up assignments mm. for the students, etc. And the idea here is that, that the students actually, that we interviewed the students, we had very different positive results. So some students experienced that they became better at actually playing the game. Mm. So by learning math around Minecraft, they became better at playing the game at home as mm. well. Some students felt that math actually made sense to them mm. for the first time in their life. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and some students said, well, we are actually the best here in math in class, but now these other guys are much better at Minecraft. We are actually taking the backseat now and we are learning a lot from them now. That's mm. really nice not to be, have to be number one all the time mm. in math, which yeah. is also a, a race in math class mm. was the best. That's an interesting point. So, yeah. so, so we had a lot of different positive findings around it, but what it all boils down to is that this is a meaningful assignment in math, but mm. also on Minecraft terms. Mm. So it's something that actually helps you to overcome a challenge in the game, which is navigating. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and finding that connection 
where you find an in-game challenge and you are building a meaningful assignment around it that ties mm. up to the curriculum. Mm. That's actually pretty hard. To it's do very in difficult. Math. Yeah. But was, on the other hand, if you can make that connection, the teacher, we came back and, and asked the students one half year later uh, for interviewing again and talking to them and said, do you remember that experience mm. with it? It's the only thing we remember from last mm. year. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and the teacher said, this experience I can actually build on for the next three years because mm. this is a strong learning experience. Mm. Mm. And I think, uh, I think this is such a good example of how to... like. Um, utilize the affordances of a game like yeah. Yeah, Minecraft mm -hmm. uh, to m achieve something that you couldn't have done otherwise. No. And it's not, like you said, just exactly. making solving math problems much more awkward. No. Because there's no point in doing. No. But and actually, I, yeah. And I think that the meaning aspect is actually key also yeah. to yeah. games in general. That sure, I can find any number of things that might be challenging to you. I can mm. have you stack stuff in this room and th that might be difficult. Mm. But if it's not meaningful, if it's not interesting to you in that context, then that challenge is meaningless. It's, mm. it's not going to engage you. So finding that key, that is key both in designing games for f just for fun, just yeah. for games yeah. that might be interesting, but with an extra layer in education to finding yeah. something where it's meaningful within the context of math and mm. your own experience. I, I, I think in a way we should actually shift uh, just an idea that pops up now. We should shift the discussion from talking about game-based learning to challenge-based learning. Mm. Because it is, if, if the, the challenge should really be the key focus, mm. it's something that I really have to becoming, I'm going to become engaged in this. And the the assignment, mm. the curricular assignment mm. around has also to be challenging mm. in a meaningful yeah. way. So we have to find a connection between those two instead of just thinking, Curriculum game mechanic. Mm, That's yeah. I think no challenge here, challenge there. How do they connect? Yes. I think so that that actually is the key, I think. And and that again that looks different <laughs> in within the subjects. Mm. So within math in particular, which have a strong tradition for using games, but also a pretty strong tradition for using brain dead learning games, mm. I think. And it it's really it's really crucial to find that connection. Mm, Whereas yeah. in for instance Danish um, uh, L1 literacy subject. You, the um, you can, you sometimes you can you don't have to have the same kind of strong connection that is tied up to game mechanics. Mm. So, but again, f building assignments around challenges um, mm. is, is is really good. So it's not just analyzing the game as a text mm. or turning into literature for literature's sake or whatever, but actually, for instance, writing a guide for a game that could mm. help another to play a game, which is really hard. The game mm. is really difficult. Mm. So it's a challenging game and you need to read this guide, otherwise you cannot progress mm. in the game. And I think you, you touched upon a very important uh, so, uh, uh, point there, is that it's it's difficult that, that, to make, to, to use video games as in education, as a teaching tool in a, in a like a productive way. It's there's no, it's no, by no means a shortcut to no. engaging the kids. And I also think that where there's not a big uh, gap to cross from motivational challenges to no no to, to meaningful challenges into motivation. I think those no, two yeah. there's a big overlap between those yeah. two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you said it's it's difficult, and you have to. I think if, if certainly if you're a teacher who wants to make a new course, new units yeah. using a game, then you have to have deep knowledge. You, most of the time, you have to deep knowledge of the stuff that you're teaching, but you also have to know the game well enough to identify mm. the relevant affordances and so on. Yeah, and, and actually, yeah, yeah. And the, again, the, the challenges. And I think yeah. that a lot of the, in my experience, I've worked a lot with math teachers and, and Danish teachers. Mm. And, and math teachers tend to focus a lot on mechanics. Mm -hmm. 
and the math the analytics tends to focus a lot of story mm-hmm. and visuals. Yeah. So and which is understandable I, in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense because that's that's uh, the easy way of relating to the curriculum. But mm. again, if you're not looking at the game experience and what how, what is how, what is the perceived game challenge? Mm. Then you are. It's actually really hard to to tie the game up to a meaningful assignment. I think. And if you can't do that, then why are you using a game? Exactly. Yeah. Why, so, why so, can't you use any other but, kind of? But text? when you but when you said that, you also have to accept that it may actually be quite limited mm. what you can use a commercial game for in a particular subject. Mm. Mm. And there might be different yeah. kind of motivational path going on at the same time. I mean, one of the things that I've observed a lot with kids playing games is that they're kind of jumping between being a student and being a gamer and they might okay so now in in one moment they might just be doing stuff within the game just for the game's sake just playing with the game and next moment they might go oh but we need to remember that we're at school as well and then then they might just kind of be in task mode so sometimes not even that game and and task merges perfectly it might also be that that students just accept that both are going on in parallel in some way and and at least the older students get, the more I get the questions. So, how does this relate to the curriculum? How am I gonna? How is this gonna help me pass my exam? So it's it's not like any kid will just say, okay, sure, game, that's fine. In some cases, their their main motivation might be to get their exams and and, and mm. do great and do well in math. And if they don't see the idea, if they don't see the meaning, then they're not gonna engage with the game, however fun it might be, because mm. they're in learning mode, they're yeah. in yeah. examination mode. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So sometimes students actually have more resistance to what game than the teachers. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, I experienced that a lot. <laughs> So uh, before we wrap this up, there's one final point I wanted to touch on, and that's uh, we've talked about the uh, students being motivated and so on. But speaking from personal experience, I find that for me, making units and assignments with games is almost inherently motivating for me. Like it makes me appreciate my own teaching in a way. So um, is that a thing that we don't talk about enough? Like uh, what? how it affects the teacher and to what degree teachers finding motivating to teach with games or I think that the, a lot of teachers would like to do that more than they do mm-hmm. but it, they what I hear is often that they don't have time or they don't know enough about mm-hmm. games to do that mm-hmm. so it's it's um, I think I mean any teacher becoming engaged by you know using devising own uh, teaching materials with games mm. uh, for his or her teaching but it's um, um, often teachers need a, a pretty high level of mm. um, game literacy <laughs> before yeah, they, they jump into it it's like a point of diminishing returns in, yeah. almost in a way yeah. or, or they need to have that experience where they play a board game with their family and they realize, exactly. wow this would work super well in my English class mm. I yeah. can use this to teach verbs or to get the kids to mm. I, I met German teachers who play the game Werewolf because that's yeah. a way of, of using a few words and, and, and playing within the class. And that often comes out of not an experience of a lifetime of gaming, but just one gaming experience where they say, oh, here I see my curriculum and my challenges yeah. merge with something that I think my kids would actually enjoy. Mm. And then they get, get on to do it. So, so, so I think very often, like you say, they need to find the game outside of the teaching context and then somehow match it. And if you're a gamer like mm. the three of us are, then that's easier because we have a much broader palette of games to yeah. choose from. Yeah. Yeah. To choose from. Whereas if you're just just a teacher who who's not a gamer, then you're going to be further between those experiences mm. of a really great game that 
also mm. happens to make sense to you as a teacher. Yeah, and also you have to. You, it takes quite a bit of experience with gaming as games as a medium before those connections like appear yeah. almost effort, effortlessly yeah. in a way. But I, I totally agree that's that most of the, at least for me, my part, most of the, the, the successful units I've had with games is that I've, well, got gotten a hunch basically that hey, this game might yeah. work, yeah, uh, in this way and so on. It's not like I've forced myself to use this game this way or. Yeah, it like feels like going on a treasure hunt almost. You didn't we were discover studying, this. We were studying one of the one of the first um, game courses in Danish teacher education, and one of the best parts of that yeah. course, according to the students, both in terms of enjoyment but also of learning, was that they had a board game cafe where, after a class, they'd spend an hour playing new games. Yeah, that's what they learned the most from because mm. they got they built their game literacy, their yeah. game repertoire. Yeah, exactly. So, so game games need to get into teacher education. So yeah. <laughs> uh, then we'll uh, spread out in schools over yeah. time. That's that's the way we need to go, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy now because gamers are in teachers' education now because the new generation of teachers yeah. are kind of the digital natives now. So yeah. Mm. The re- revolution is coming. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the uh, <laughs> fine point uh, way to end this uh, this episode. So I thank you both for uh, uh, having this conversation with me, and uh, yeah. See you next episode. Thank you, Tobias. Thank you. Thanks a lot.